0: Welcome to Premier Health Now on Air. Today we have some very helpful and timely health tips for Thanksgiving and heading into winter, and they're straight from the source. We're glad you joined us. I'm your moderator, Leslie Lane, and with me today are Dr. Erin Block, a primary care doctor with Franklin Family Practice. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much.
0: And Meredith Jones, premier clinical Dietitian, who knows all about good eats and good eating. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thanks, Leslie. Safety is on our minds today. We've seen some frosty weather in southwest Ohio, and once the real cold settles in, we want to be sure our homes are safe for those long winter nights. So my question for both of you, who's checked their smoke alarms? Oh, Not I. Man. <laughs> Not yet.
1: I do have one that's plugged in, so it'll let me know what the level of carbon monoxide is. So I guess I do check on that as I walk by.
2: Okay, good. (laughs) That's smart.
0: So (laughs) we're all going to go home and check now. Yes. So, Dr. Block, what kind of alarms should we have?
1: Well, the very basic smoke detectors have been around for a long time, and those are often the ones that we put up on the ceiling. Um, The reason that these are so important is carbon monoxide is a silent killer. Oftentimes, people don't even realize they're getting poisoned by it, so they get headaches and nauseous and just generally don't feel well, but you're never going to see anything. So oftentimes we want to encourage people to put carbon monoxide monitors on their ceiling where gas rises, so it'll be exposed to that. Or like I have, I have one that actually plugs into the wall pretty close to where I have a gas fireplace. So if there are ever gas fumes that come up, it'll actually give me a, a reading and notify me with sound.
0: What about near bedrooms? Do we have to have multiples?
1: Yeah, typically you want to have one in each bedroom, especially if you have children. Uh, it's good to have one in each bedroom because no matter you know where the fire starts, you want to be able to pick it up around the house. Oftentimes, a lot of the fire alarms too, if you buy specific ones, they will talk to each other. So if one picks up the actual signal that's going off, all of a sudden, all of them in the house will start going off to notify you.
0: Great for new technology. I have not heard about that. Mm-hmm. How often should we be changing our alarms?
1: The alarms are good for a couple of years. Uh, Most importantly, though, is that we check the batteries to make sure that the power source is still working. So at least twice a year, there's an emergency test button that you're going to want to press to make sure that it's acting normally.
0: So now here's a trickier question for both of you, although you didn't do so well on the first one. (laughs) Who has a fire extinguisher? Oh, both? Okay, excellent. Excellent. Do you know where it is? Yes. Okay. mm -hmm. So can you talk us through proper technique to use one?
1: Yeah, certainly. So there is an acronym that I remember since I was a little kid in school known as PASS. So it's pull, aim, squeeze, and sweep. So first you want to make sure that you know where the location of your fire extinguisher is because if you can't find it, it's not so helpful. First you pull the pin, and that is an emergency protection against squeezing the fire extinguisher accidentally. Then you want to make sure that the nozzle is pointed directly at the base of the fire. If you're trying to aim towards the top of the flames, most likely it's not going to take the fire out. So aim closely towards the ground, and then when you're ready, you squeeze the lever, and it will start releasing the contents, and then you use a sweeping motion to go ahead and try to extinguish all of the fire.
0: Like smoke alarms and carbon monoxide detectors, do I need to be... Worried about the the lifespan of my fire extinguisher?
1: Yeah, so most municipal buildings, our hospitals, our offices, we all have them checked at least once a year. Usually, if you check, there will be an expiration date for how long it's guaranteed for. Oftentimes, they can be recertified, so you don't necessarily need to buy a new one every year.
0: When you say recertified, what does that mean?
1: They actually have companies that will check to make sure that the pressure is appropriate, because if there's not enough pressure, you're not going to be able to get the contents out. And they'll make sure to check that it's all in working order.
0: Okay, so good fall maintenance. Yes. Another home safety must-have is a first aid kit. I've seen them for sale, very specific ones, for boaters, for weekends on the road, even for your pets. What should you have at home, and should you buy one, or can you build your own?
1: You certainly can buy them already prepackaged. Um, But it's easy enough to make them at your own, and usually you can do it a little bit cheaper that way as well. The point of the first aid kits is you never know what kind of troubles you're going to run into, especially as you're coming upon Thanksgiving, and as our dietician can attest to, you're going to be using knives, cutting up lots of vegetables and things.
2: (laughs) Ouch! Yes, sharp knives.
1: So we want to make sure that in case perhaps you have a cut, you have things ready to go. When you have a cut, the first thing you want to do is put some pressure on that, and if holding it down isn't enough, you can usually get a pretty thick absorbent bandage to wrap around the cut and hold tight for a couple minutes to stop the bleeding. So it's good to have those packed in your first aid kit along with bandages, tape, anything to kind of go ahead and close it. Other important things for a first aid kit that's usually recommended by the Red Cross would include uh, baby aspirin, so if people have chest pain and you're worried about potentially saving somebody's life for a heart attack, baby aspirin can actually save someone's life while you're getting them to the emergency department. Having gloves in case there's an emergency and you want to protect yourself against bodily fluids, thermometers, even scissors if you're needing to cut away things in a hurry can also be really important uh, in case of injury.
0: Are there any new things that you've seen on the market that are really great to have? I, one of my personal favorites is spray-on bandages. I love those things. Well, because when you have a an odd place for a cut and you just cannot get the little dot or the strip to stick there, mm-hmm. is there any fun things that you've seen um, or perhaps have in your own first aid kit at home?
1: Sure. So if you have a concern that the bandage isn't going to stick, you can get these little swabs just like alcohol swabs for adhesive to help the bandages stick or oftentimes we have a lot of liquid bandage type materials where we can use almost a super glue like material to close cuts and oftentimes people like that because there aren't any stitches involved.
0: And some bandages now even have like antibiotics in the bandage.
1: Oftentimes you don't necessarily need those antibiotics as long as you really make sure that you wash and cleanse that wound really well. But sometimes if you're afraid that it's looking red puffy and you're trying to get into your primary care doctor so that then you can get it checked out, that's not necessarily a bad thing to consider.
0: That's a good point about the antibiotics because we do want to be smart about killing germs, bacteria, fungus, viruses. Can you walk us through antiseptic, antibacterial, disinfectant, and what goes into our first aid kit?
1: When something is labeled as antiseptic, oftentimes it means that it will kill a variety of uh, organisms that can cause infections, such as bacteria, viruses, or fungus. But it's usually something that is safe to use on the body. So if you have a wound and you use an antiseptic wound cleaner, or even if you're using mouthwash, that's usually an antiseptic to kill all of the germs in the mouth that cause bad breath. Things that are more likely labeled as disinfectants oftentimes are referring to wipes or sprays that actually clean countertops and such to prevent you know, spread of infection that way.
0: Um, so not necessarily needed in our first aid kit? Well, it's not a bad thing to have.
1: Having some bacitracin or double or even triple antibiotic ointment. Um, one of the common brands is Neosporin for the triple.
0: Well with the holidays coming, we hope everyone doing food prep in the kitchen has no need for either Fire alarms or first aid kits, but we still should be thinking about food safety, right, Meredith?
2: Yes. We're so all give about us food safety.
0: give us some reminders about the important steps to take for safe food preparation, especially working with poultry, as many of us do at Thanksgiving.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, one of the most important things is make sure you wash your hands and you wash your hands frequently when you're dealing with raw chicken, raw meat, because of the risk of cross contamination. So with washing your hands, make sure you're using soap, warm water. Uh, Get your hands wet and lather them up for at least 20 seconds. Sometimes you can sing yourself happy birthday twice. That's a recommendation. But that's to ensure that you're getting everything off your hands. Um, And make sure you get underneath your fingernails, too. That's one thing I've heard recently that people miss a lot, especially when you're dealing with chicken. You're getting in there holding it. You want to make sure you're cleaning underneath your fingernails. Also, when you're cutting up poultry and then maybe moving on to vegetables for another dish, have separate cutting boards. You don't want to use the same cutting board to cut vegetables that you just use to put your turkey on. That's risk for cross contamination. And by having the separate cutting boards, you ensure you don't have that problem. And then once you're done with everything, making sure you're sanitizing it well. You can use a tablespoon of liquid chlorine bleach and a gallon of water, and that would be good uh, sanitizing solution to use to clean everything up. Another thing to remember is also when you're cooking your turkey. You want to make sure that you're cooking it long enough so that it's killing all the bacteria in the turkey um, and you don't get food poisoning. So you want to make sure you get a good internal temperature of at least 165. And it would be good to use a meat thermometer when you're cooking a turkey. Don't always rely on those little red poppy things in your turkey because sometimes they're not the best indicator. So if you have a meat thermometer or if you don't, you can get one real easily in your grocery store and, and they're not super expensive. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. And make sure you use that to check your turkey and make sure you get to a really thick portion of the turkey when you're t- checking the temperature. Like the, le- usually the upper thigh mm-hmm. is, a, is a good one. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. yep. Don't just like meekly touch it to the surface. That's not <laughs> going to do it. You want to get in there, get in the middle, make sure you're reading the internal temperature so that, it, so that you know it's done.
0: Since you mentioned cutting boards, is there a kind of cutting board material that's better than others when you're dealing with poultry and raw meat?
2: Mm-hmm. I typically like uh, a good plastic cutting board. Some wooden cutting boards, they might be really nice and pretty and nice to use, but as you cut on them and you use sharp knives, you can develop these grooves in the wood and bacteria can get down in there and it gets harder to clean that out. Typically plastic, is a little easier to get clean. And plastic too, you can put in a dishwasher. But if you have a lot and you have a sanitizing setting on your dishwasher, you can also clean them that way too.
0: And not that we're a cooking show, but advice about thawing that turkey... I will tell you, this is a true story. I was at a friend's house, and there was poultry on a plate sawing on the bookshelf. Oh. I just cringed.
1: (laughs) Definitely not what I recommend. At at first I
0: thought
2: it was art, and then I realized it it was chicken. Well, the absolute best thing to do is to plan ahead and put it in the refrigerator and let it defrost in the refrigerator. You will have to plan ahead because it, it doesn't necessarily take two hours to defrost in the refrigerator. Depending on how big it is, you might have to think a like whole day or even a day and a half ahead of time. You didn't never want to leave it on the counter to defrost. One method that is used, but it's not the best, is some people put it in their sink and sit it in water. That is one way to do it. It's not the most sanitary. Um, It will work if you have the water running continuously. You need to keep recycling that water so that the bacteria is not sitting in the sink and accumulating. And to me, that's just wasteful. I'm not going to defrost a whole turkey in a sink with running water. So I'd rather plan ahead and put it in my refrigerator and know that it's safe and cool and completely defrosted when I need it.
0: And the refrigerator is the same place that poultry or meat should be when it's marinating, correct? Correct, yes.
2: We want to be careful
0: about that. Well, we're talking turkey, but many people are looking for alternatives to that turkey tradition. What can you suggest for a vegetarian main dish or a good selection of tasty vegetarian side dishes that could make a meal?
2: I've seen a lot of stuffed squash recipes, and squash is very popular this time of year. It's in season. So a lot of vegetarian stuffed acorn squash. And you can get creative with using either beans or tofu. Tofu is a soy-based protein, and and beans are legumes-based protein. And you can incorporate them in a mixture with like rice and seasonings and other veggies and use them to stuff the squash. And those turn out actually very tasty.
1: Well, there's also the very traditional green beans to have with your Thanksgiving side dish, so I'm certainly a big fan of that. But any vegetables that are in season at the time, a lot of our local farmer's markets will bring them up. So certainly don't be afraid to go and visit them, support your local farmers and businesses. And oftentimes you'll find some neat alternatives that you can add to your Thanksgiving meal. And in addition with that, the more vegetables that you supplement with instead of all the stuffing and pumpkin pie, as good as they are, also helps kind of counteract some of those heavy uh, calories we'll be taking in.
0: Because when we go that traditional turkey stuffing, gravy, pie route, the Calorie Control Council has researched how many calories the average American consumes during a typical holiday gathering. And we're talking the early snacking, you know, that starts, okay, early, through (laughs) dessert. So we will just give our listeners one moment to guess, and then we reveal how many is it. Forty-five hundred calories on average. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Especially
1: when (laughs) your daily intake is around should be around two thousand to twenty-five hundred, depending on your needs. That's almost two days in one.
2: Yeah, one sitting. So,
0: Meredith, how can we make a healthy plate?
2: The USDA has a great map. Choose My Plate. It's a method to map out your plate as you're choosing what to have when you eat. And you can go to choosemyplate.gov and actually see a visual of this plate. Ideally, what we'd like to see is half of your plate. So if you look at your plate, you need to divide in half. Half of it should be vegetables or fruit. Ideally, heavier, more heavy with the vegetables than the fruit. And the other half, you would divide into quarters. And a quarter of that would be your grain. And then the other quarter would be your protein. So, this can be a great way to help control your portions. And then the other thing to remember is try not to go back for seconds. Oh. Um, <laughs> I thought you were well, going to
0: say start with a small plate, but. <laughs> uh, that too, that too.
2: And also take your time eating. You know, don't rush through your meal. Enjoy it. It takes about 20 minutes for your body to register that you've eaten and to feel full, and I know we're going to touch on that in a little bit here. But by slowing down your chewing, even putting your fork down in between bites, or having a glass of water and trying to take sips in between bites, or maybe not having your mouth full when you're talking to someone next to you, can help slow you down and so that you not. Polite. Yes, that, that's it, yes. <laughs> But when you're around family, I know sometimes manners go out the window. But yeah, all those things can help slow you down so that after your meal, you don't feel so ravenous and you feel like you need to have more to eat. So
0: Dr. Block, how is it that we can eat and then suddenly we're stuffed? What's going on with that body signal that says, we're done, we're full, stop now. We just seem to miss it, especially at Thanksgiving.
1: (laughs) Which is true. As the food... Enters the stomach, there are signals that tell the brain, okay, there's food here. We probably need to slow down the hunger sensation and digest. The problem is, because it's such a complex cascade of events, oftentimes it takes at least about 20 minutes for the gut and the brain to get on the same page there. So if you're super excited about your Thanksgiving meal and you're enjoying the very delicious food, but you're piling it in very quickly, oftentimes you're going to be able to take in a whole lot more than your body needs before you start feeling satisfied.
0: So that's why we put the fork down. Yes. Take the sip of water (laughs) or have a nice conversation with Aunt Ruth. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the other interesting thing that happens at Thanksgiving is this, oh, turkey, I must take a nap. Is it fact or fiction that tryptophan in turkey makes us sleepy? And what is it anyway?
2: Tryptophan is an amino acid, and it's been linked to drowsiness. Your body uses it to create serotonin, which makes you feel sleepy. But typically, a four ounce piece of turkey may only contain about a quarter of a gram of tryptophan, which really isn't enough to knock you out. Likely what the issue is, is a large amount of food, especially a large amount of fat, large amount of sugar, which takes a while for your body to digest, that makes you feel very sleepy. The distension in your small intestine triggers this parasympathetic response that is very conductive to sleep, makes your body ready to take a nap. So that's likely what's going on.
1: And the doctor agrees. I agree. Oftentimes a lot of the blood is there because you need the blood to help support the body in digesting that food. So if the blood is in the gut, it's certainly not in the head. So people tend to want to take a nap so that they can let their body do its
0: job. So a more distressing after-dinner experience is heartburn. Dr. Plock, how can we tell if it's heartburn we're feeling?
1: So this is something that I encounter in my office with patients all the time. Heartburn tends to be in the center of the body, just underneath the chest, but sometimes it can feel like it's actually in the chest. Sometimes we don't even know that we have heartburn going on, and it can be a process that goes on for a long period of time. More often than not, when you're having true heartburn versus a worrisome chest pain, it's going to be related to food, to a meal. If you're eating things that are spicy, things that are very rich, so definitely the Thanksgiving meal has a lot of fat in it, which makes it a very rich meal. A lot of times people will get a burning sensation kind of in their upper part of their abdomen, and sometimes they can even feel it all the way to the back of their throat. If, however, you're having symptoms in the belly or the chest, and you are sweating, you are short of breath, you don't feel well in general, that can be a sign of a more worrisome event, and that's typically when you're going to want to go and be seen by somebody.
0: Quickly, I presume, because you're thinking what?
1: Well, one of the very large risks is heart attack. And we do see that sometimes with these large Thanksgiving meals, because again, people who eat a whole lot of food, that blood all sits in the gut. So if you're having issues with circulating blood around the body, sometimes that puts extra stress on the heart. And if the heart is not healthy to begin with, then that leads to some trouble.
0: Well, one of the ways we can get that blood moving around is activity at Thanksgiving. Absolutely.
2: Either of you have a holiday tradition of activities outside? If it's nice out and the weather's cooperating in Ohio, <laughs> uh, we'll go for a walk around the neighborhood. Is Just that before or after dinner? After. Just to kind of like get the blood circulating, get the blood flowing again. So what tips do you have, Dr. Block, to make these
0: outdoor activities enjoyable instead of a pain in the neck or shoulders or back or hamstring?
1: Well, if you're worried about the joint pain, some of the recommendations would be warm up slowly a little bit first with some walking and some gentle stretching. So if you're going to go out for the family football game, make sure that you are loose and ready to go rather than jumping in without warming up. We tell athletes of all ages, no matter... If you're five years old or if you're 55 years old, it's really important to make sure that you warm up and stretch.
0: And you can burn some calories, right?
1: Absolutely. So remember, if you burn the calories, then maybe there's a little bit more wiggle room to get that extra piece of pie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's one other holiday opportunity for family togetherness, and that's volunteering. There are opportunities to volunteer at soup kitchens, and and everybody benefits, right, Dr. Block?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So things that help reduce stress in the body also help improve health. So we actually have a direct scientific link that feeling down, hopeless, depressed, having lots of stressors leads to worse outcomes. People just aren't as healthy. So they have found that people who volunteer for at least 200 hours per year oftentimes will have better blood pressure rates, and overall cardiovascular health because they've done things to help reduce their stress levels.
0: So Thanksgiving could be a great time to start. Absolutely.
1: It's time to be thankful and reflect on uh, good things and and help others that maybe aren't so fortunate.
0: Doing for others is a time-tested therapy for lifting our spirits, and that could be very important as the days get shorter. Vitamin D may play a role in regulating our mood, too, and that's a problem this time of year because our bodies need the sun to produce vitamin D, and we haven't been seeing very much of
2: it. Why is D so important, Meredith? Vitamin D is important to help your body absorb calcium, which is, of course, needed for our bones and helps enable normal mineralization of the bone, so those go hand in hand. We need enough vitamin D so that we can absorb enough calcium for that. And like you mentioned, it does help with mood regulation, and of course, as the days get shorter and... We turn our clocks back and we don't have less sunlight. Our bodies aren't able to absorb as much sunlight to produce vitamin D. But we are able to get it from our diets. But typically, we're not able to get 100% of what we need from our diet. So that's why we need the sun. But in the winter, then, it's more important to supplement through your diet to get enough vitamin D. And vitamin D can be found in dairy, egg yolks, fatty fishes, and even mushrooms. So mushrooms can be added to a lot of dishes to get more vitamin D and getting more fatty fish in your diet, like salmon or tuna, egg yolks um, in moderate amounts, a couple egg yolks a week would be a good source. And then most of the time, milk is fortified with vitamin D and other dairy products. Um, So just making sure you're getting a variety of those in your diet would be a good way to get enough. A good start. Mm -hmm. But
0: vitamin D may not be the whole story here. There's something called seasonal affective disorder, appropriately known as SAD, What is it, and what can we do about that, Dr. Block?
1: Seasonal affective disorder I consider within the spectrum of depression. The thing that makes seasonal affective disorder different than typical depression, however, is it's usually seen in the fall and the winter times as the days get shorter and we get less sunlight. There are multiple reasons why sunlight is extremely important for us. One of them is that the light enters our eyes, and it actually triggers a burst of serotonin and other melatonin neurochemicals in the brain. So when we don't get enough sunlight, we don't make those typical neurotransmitters that we need to function that have a lot to do with energy, mood, motivation, sleep, etc. So as the days get shorter, we have less sunlight, and oftentimes we fall into what I call the winter doldrums, where it's kind of like hibernation.
0: So what can we do about it?
1: So, if the problem is light, then the answer is light therapy. There are specially made lights that have a certain brightness that are equivocal to the brightness of the rays from the sun. So usually it takes about 30 minutes every day. If you have these lights, you can sit in front of them. They don't have any UV rays, so we're not worried about any skin cancer issues. But just being in front of a bright light for up to 30 minutes a day can often fix the lack of sunlight that we have in the wintertime and make us feel like we're kind of back to normal. If the sunlight therapy after two weeks or so isn't really making you feel like you do normally in the spring and summertime, then that's often a good time to go see your doctor and talk about your symptoms.
0: So to sum up, we need to get those smoke and carbon monoxide detectors up. We need to be first aid ready. We need to pace ourselves at the Thanksgiving table and help ourselves to stay upbeat through the winter. Thanks for a great conversation. Dr. Aaron Block, Franklin Family Practice and Meredith Jones, Premier Clinical Dietitian. If you want to know more, visit premierhealth.com/healthnow. We'll be back and we hope you will. I'm Leslie Lane and thanks for joining us. Watch for our next edition of Premier Health Now on air.